0: Hi, I'm Mark Brody, and this is the Friday Newscap podcast. Each week, we review the biggest stories with experts, reporters, and commentators to put the news in perspective. Here's this week's episode. We're already seeing a huge impact on tourism and trade, um, and that's one port of entry. um, So I don't want to have to find out what could happen. uh, So hopefully we won't be having that conversation.
1: I can just tell you that, you know, uh, definitely this coming weekend, we're probably at a 80% cancellation rate. I would say maybe 20, 25% of the people are still coming and they're just going to take the alternate route to come here.
2: We have to secure the border. And um, unfortunately, the Biden administration isn't doing that.
0: We can't do it unless you have willing people to work on it. And right now, the Republicans seem to be, their narrative is the worse it gets, the better
1: for us.
2: We already know how this plays out. Texas should look at what happened in Arizona so that they can correct their actions.
1: The Go Safe Act is a renewed
0: effort on this issue to tackle this gun violence epidemic in our country. And it is an epidemic.
2: Why not be a little more of good faith and have people come to the table and say, well, yeah, let's let's figure out how to raise teacher salaries
1: by 4,000. Because if we can do 4,000, We go from being just below the national average to just
0: above the national average. And with me to talk about the closing of a key border crossing in Arizona, the decision to not replace a state Supreme Court justice who's recusing himself in next week's arguments over abortion laws and more, are Marcus Dellertino of First Strategic. Good morning, Marcus. Good morning. And former state lawmaker Aaron Lieberman. Aaron, good morning to you. Great to be here. So, Marcus, this uh, closing of the Lukeville Port of Entry seems to be maybe the one thing that can unite Republicans and Democrats in Arizona in the sense that they all hate it. Oh, it's
1: absolutely insane. Uh, And, you know, probably one of the most defining moments of this administration, if you if you come from the context of understanding that the road to the White House goes through Arizona, it's one of the most critical, if not the most critical state in the electoral map moving into this next election. Um, this is a folly by this White House that is just epic proportions. Um, and as you so aptly put it, Democrats and Republicans can agree that this is a disaster. I will also add to that that I really believe at the end of the day, this is a massive political maneuver by CBP. Um, and it's clear we know where their union stands, right? On who they want in the White House, and I think not the person, who's and in it's there. certainly not Joe Biden. Um, And so I think they pulled a power play here to accentuate, you know, what the problems are at the border. But this White House hasn't reacted to that. I mean, you are the president. You are their boss. You're supposed to be making these decisions. And this just absolutely lack of any response whatsoever is, is deafening.
0: Aaron, how significant could this be? Obviously, we know what it what it could do. We've been talking all week about what it could do economically, both in Arizona and on the Mexican side of the border. But politically, what kind of impact do you think this might have? Of course, depending on how long it lasts.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, everything in Arizona in these toss-up presidential elections get down to thousands of votes. I mean, Joe Biden won by ten thousand, and you, there's innumerable things you can look back at and say it was that or this or the other thing. Mm-hmm. So everything really counts. Um, it, it, this feels like an own goal situation where you're scoring on yourself and it just doesn't make any sense. I think it's time for some sort of Apollo 13 like work the problem people. You know, what is it going to take to solve this and whether we need, you know, our own National Guard troops down there, whatever whatever it takes, we should figure it out. My sister's got a place in Rocky Point on the personal side of here. You know, there's a lot of Arizonans who like to go down there who've got places down there and um, Las Palomas, those places are totally empty, a ghost town right now because we haven't been able to get this to work out. And I'm hoping for a Christmas miracle here.
0: Well, so, Marcus, you mentioned the National Guard, and there was some talk very early on from some Republican lawmakers encouraging, urging Governor Hobbs to put the National Guard on the border. She has said she's not going to do that in large part, it seems, because they like the stuff that they would need to do. They're not really allowed to do.
2: Well, I think that always gets to the question of like, OK, is this actually helpful? You know, and is there some way to work it? I'm a big get everybody in the room, get get the Border Patrol, you know, get Mark, whoever needs to be in the room, get in the room and say, how are we going to get this open? And how are we going to get it open now? That's the type of leadership I think we definitely need. And, and to Marcus's point, on some level, it's got to come from the White House. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a federal border. Uh, you'd think they'd be super attuned to what's going on in Arizona, given the political dynamic here. And hopefully something will get resolved quickly.
0: Marcus, how does this end? How does this port get reopened?
1: Uh, You know, the short – the fastest way to do it, frankly, would be to move assets within the federal government into Lukeville. And so presumably those would be federal law enforcement officials. That's not going to happen. And to your point, the National Guard doesn't work either. So um, I think you're going to have to come to some sort of agreement. I think it's time for this president or somebody in the White House uh, who presumably wants to keep their job – uh, to go to CBP and say, OK, what assets can we move around to get Lukeville back open? The, the danger that's going to happen here is one of the routes down to Rocky Point that is open, that is a suggested reroute, uh, which takes, I think, an hour and a half longer to get down there, is controlled by the cartels. Um, and something really bad is going to happen to some nice tourist family that's headed down there. And... It's going to be, you know, politically a wipeout. But I, you know, this is a White House that Kamala Harris was the borders are. She hasn't been to the border. This president's been in town more than a few times now and has lacked going down to the border. Um, I'm not too sure they're interested in solving it. And to that point, I think that they've guaranteed they're going to lose Arizona. That's how critical of an issue I think this is.
0: Well, so Marcus, is going back to your earlier point though about CBP maybe doing a, a little bit of a power play here. Can The White House and that organization can they come to some kind of agreement?
1: I think they can. It's to Aaron's point: go work the problem. Um, You know, presumably we're all grown ups here, and they can get to some sort of resolution uh, here. And you know, at the end of the day, does it result in somebody getting a pay raise at CBP? I'm I'm sure, Uh, but they also need more officers. That's pretty clear. Uh, And and. Again, back to my original point. You're the president of the United States, for God's sakes. You're in control of this agency. You can order them to do certain things. Aaron, do you think that – I mean you mentioned that
0: this sounds kind of like an own goal. It feels like you know, sort of a yeah. self-inflicted wound for the White House. Do you think they really do understand how significant this is in Arizona?
2: I bet they're hearing it from our congressmen and our our senators, or certainly one of our senators. And I, I think that that's honestly what it's going to take. That's it's a little bit how our system works, right? You know, you got your representative government, who are looking at the the local stuff. They're they're going back to D.C. and they're calling the White House and saying we got to do something here. And I you know I you would think those calls get returned first, mm-hmm. where the where the president's at and where the where the country at with the road to the White House, literally going through Arizona. But to to
1: that point, I would also add that, you know, I think to a certain extent, there is some tone deafness. I think we've all gotten used to delegations from Arizona, Texas, um, and some of the southern states complaining about immigration, right? And so I think that, you know, after that complaining goes on for a while, you get tone deaf. But – Like a boy who cried wolf situation. Right. But now you're looking at the mayor of New York screaming about it. You know, now you're watching the effect of it happening in other states. um, And I think that that are not conservative, that are not Republican states. Um, and I think that that is starting to get a little attention in the White House. And if it doesn't, then it, they're going to learn a lesson the hard way.
2: In, in a weird way, this is the opposite issue, right? This is Americans wanting to go to Mexico. It's, it's, <laughs> a, it's, a, it's a different spin on the whole the yeah. whole border thing, which is why it kind of feels so weird. Like, hey, we we can't even get that to work. Like, yeah. these these are you know Americans wanting to go sit on a beach in Mexico. Like, let's let's all get together and make it happen.
0: That is interesting. All right, guys. So we found out this week that. Um, we found out last week that State Supreme Court Justice Bill Montgomery would, in fact, recuse himself in the case to be heard next Tuesday over Arizona's abortion laws. We found out this week that he will not be replaced on the bench for those arguments, meaning there will be six justices here in the case, meaning that it is at least theoretically possible... Of having a 3-3 three, three tie. Mark, is you surprised that the chief justice is not, not replacing uh, Justice Montgomery here?
1: No, I'm not. I'm not particularly surprised. I was I was more surprised at Bill Montgomery's reversal. I yeah. think that took everybody by a little bit of shock because you remember he had a press release, I, I think, the day before um, saying, I'm not going to recuse myself. And then. I, even I got confused. I was like, "Wait, where are we?" are we're recused. We're not recused. So now he's recused. So now we're sitting at a six-six. Even on the way in, I heard you know the news was talking about you know theoretically we can do a three-three. Theoretically, you can do a lot of things, but I'm going to tell you, I don't think that that is a likely scenario. I okay. think it will not be a 3-3. I think it, you're looking more at a 4-2 or a 5-1 or even a 6-0. But the least likely scenario,
2: I think in this case, would be a
0: 3-3. What do you think, Aaron? I,
2: I think that's one of the reasons. This, On some level, this was an easy recusal because it's not going to change the outcome. Um, this all goes back to a packed you know, Supreme Court that our previous governor did, and I, I love hearing everyone rail against packing the Supreme Court in the United States, but we did that exact same thing here in Arizona. And that's what we're still dealing with, you know, a majority of appointees uh, by one party who and it's pretty clear, I think, where this decision is going to go. I was happy that, that Bill Montgomery did that. I mean, I think if you were on the record saying all of these things about cases, you're supposed to hear impartially. It makes a lot of sense. Um, Sometimes sense and what actually happens doesn't line up. It was it was nice to see him make this move this time.
0: What do you think Marcus led him to to make this change? And obviously we don't want to get inside anybody's head, inside anybody's thought process. But as you pointed out, he had pretty strongly said he was not going to recuse himself. And then very shortly
1: thereafter, he said, "Eh, maybe I will. Yeah, I think I I think think upon further reflection, I'm certain somebody talked to him. I don't know who that somebody is. But I think upon further reflection, it makes sense to recuse yourself, right? A lot of people forget this, but judges are up on the ballot um, and he is no uh, he's up on the ballot as well. So my point to him would have been why not take the argument away from your opponents who are going to attack you? Um, It's pretty clear that, you know, there is an organization out there that is purpose is to opposed judges being retained on the ballot. I would assume that there's going to be a couple judges on the Supreme Court that have campaigns run against them. The easy argument would be take the argument away. They're going to attack you on being part of this, that you should have conflicted yourself. Take that argument off the table and walk away.
0: Aaron, do you think that this case obviously will be heard next week? We'll expect a ruling sometime after that. If, as a lot of people, and both of you suggested it, the case goes the way that a lot of people think it it will go, what does that do for efforts to collect signatures to to put the, uh, the constitutional amendment on the ballot?
2: It, it definitely helps. I mean, the reality is, um, it, you know, we've seen in state after state, Republican-dominated states, when this question gets to the ballot, uh, voters come out. It's great for Democrats, frankly, from a turnout perspective. It's also great for democracy to actually have what the majority of people want be the state law. And I think you know, there's a a lot of barriers have been built, largely by the Republican-dominated legislature over the last decade, to getting legisl- to actually getting a petition signed. So it's a there's a technical side to it, but in terms of the willingness of people to volunteer, of people to stop for that person in the supermarket parking lot and say, yeah, oh heck yeah, I'll sign that. Um, it all goes up when there's more attention and more exposure on
0: this. Marcus, do you see this case and and sort of the arguments and eventually the ruling? Is that a big driver for for signature gathering efforts?
1: Yeah, I think I think so. You know, reflecting back, I mean, this is part of a national strategy by the Democrats and the White House to get this abortion questions on on the ballot in states that are, you know, purple or close, uh, whatever you want to define to help turn out going into the general election for for the Biden White House. The Thing that's obviously different here in Arizona is we've also got this Supreme Court case coming, which is going to sort of be the driver in the in the dialogue leading into that. So I think I fully expect it to drive signature gathering.
2: Well, you know, my, my response to that is you reap what you sow. It was fascinating to go back and look at the when, when Sandra Justice O'Connor passed like her decision in some of these abortion cases. Yeah. She very clearly tied it to not wanting to overrule the will of the people basically and and you know that's what's kind of been unleashed here by a supreme court that had a minority view that they imposed on the entire country in terms of turning this back to the states and when you turn things back to the states Uh, people can make their voices heard a little bit easier than in the federal government. And that's what we're hearing right now.
0: Aaron, let me start with you on uh, an announcement we had this week from the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, putting a decent amount of money uh, into the effort to turn Arizona's legislature from Republican to Democrat, saying it'll spend $70,000 in next year's election, the second biggest amount after Michigan. Of course, Governor Hobbs has made this a priority of hers as well. At the same time, like we've been hearing about this for decades now, that this is the year the Democrats are going to win one or both chambers. Is 2024
2: the year? Well, I've lived I've lived right on that edge myself when I was <laughs> uh, you know, I think when I beat a Republican, it brought the legislature to thirty one twenty nine. And crazily, it stayed there. That's right so where it's since, been. Yeah. Exactly. And we, we, we picked up one seat when when Senator Marsh won. Uh, in in 2020, and we're right on a razor's edge. Um, sometimes I'll be honest; it feels like the horizon, as you get closer to it, it's just right beyond your grasp for Democrats. Uh, but the reality is, I think people know this: the state is changing. First of all, in just terms of who's here and what's going on, uh, the biggest change has been who's winning Republican primaries. And you know, the the great challenge in legislative races, state legislative races, is getting people to focus. And it's hard when you're um, you know buried in the the presidential race and everything else. There's a huge turnout advantage for Republicans in non-presidential years. It gets closer to even in presidential years. So you would, if you look through the legislative races and see those that were one or 2,000, you think, oh, that's a winnable race. If the candidates have enough money to communicate and, frankly, to communicate about how in many instances extreme the person on the other side is, hmm. that's when you can kind of tip the balance in these races. So these dollar amounts mean something. We have an incredible effort in the state, the ADLCC, to focus on this um they've done a great job getting us to where we're at and you know hopefully this is the year we get in the end zone from a democratic
0: perspective. Marcus at the same time though a lot of the like most of the districts in the state are not considered competitive, right? So like this $70,000 presumably will just be flooding what four or five districts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I should tell you I think that might be a typo. I think yeah. it's going to be a whole lot more like than 70, 70 million. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think it will be in the millions of dollars. Um And so, you know, that is an unprecedented amount for for the Democrats to spend on the legislature. But I'll tell you, one of the biggest drivers or excuse me, the biggest driver in these races is the presidential race Mm -hmm. and its turnout. Um, And when you take into account Arizona is the most competitive state in the union for a presidential race, you've got a U.S. Senate race and an arguably the most interesting U.S. Senate race in the in the nation, which is going to have millions of dollars spent on it. At some point, you've got this dwindling returns on how much more money can I spend, right? Um, and so when when we do things like this, I'm a little – I have to take it with a grain of salt um, and keep into context that voter turnout is going to be close to 100 percent anyway. By the time you've taken out who isn't actually – you know, alive to vote anymore, or moved, or whatever. You think you we'll, think we'll be will be close. that? You I think, think it'll be close to a hundred percent. Not, not from what the official secretary of state's number is going to be, but I think in a, actual a people who who might vote who. I think we will be very close to that. Okay. And so then the question is, you know, does that $70 million really make a massive impact uh, on messaging in those legislative races? And, you know, time will only tell, but it allows them to start a lot earlier, I will tell you that, and craft the message.
2: Well, uh, look, a lot of this comes down to candidates and candidates that are good for these sorts of districts. A, a great one that's a potential flip, which would change everything in the Senate, Judy Schwiebert, who's now running against a, a appointed candidate, who I also... Uh, served with in, in Shawna Pollock. Um, Judy's a great candidate. She's a grandma. She's a teacher, worked in the school. You know, she she comes off as who she is, kind of a middle-of-the-road person. Again, what it gets down to is low visibility races. If she has the money to communicate and let people know, that really, really helps. And and there's there's two things in these races that win, and I know myself the money to communicate and knocking doors. And if you have candidates who are doing both of those things, that's where you can get to those tipping upsets.
0: What's the, the balance, though, between, yes, turnout is up, obviously, in a presidential year, but there's so much attention on that race and on the Senate race that by the time you get down to the legislative races, like, do are people paying that much attention, Marcus?
1: Not usually. Um, it just at that point, you start to come back to your party. Um, you might have a big decision to make at the president or maybe the U.S. Senate, but by the time you get down ticket, you're traditionally coming back to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party if you're a registered Democrat. So then the question is where do the independents go? Um, and I, what I expect the Democrats to do, um, and Aaron can tell me if I'm wrong, but is to dovetail the messaging on the abortion initiative uh, to the state legislative races. And so I expect that most of the messaging coming from the AZ. Uh, deal uh, will be about uh, uh, pro-choice versus pro-life.
2: Yeah. Interesting. It, it, it's hugely motivating. The other big thing in those races is actually it's a very technical term here, down ballot drop off. People yeah. just stop voting when they when they get down there. And we would look at these races. You can kind of figure it out by looking at the returns for the higher things by legislative district. You know, often just the people who don't vote would have completely swayed the result. And sometimes that's on the Republican side. Sometimes that's on the Democratic side. You know, to Marcus's point, I think what happened in the last election was the top of the ticket was – we got so many Democrats elected because of extreme far right candidates that when people got to the legislative races, they were like, "Well, I'm not a I'm not a straight line Democrat ticket voter. I mean, I voted for Chris Mays. I voted for Adrian Fontes. I voted for Katie Hops. Like, I'm, yeah. a, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not going to do that all the way down." Um, there's going to be less of that because we don't have those statewide elections on on the presidential ballot. So they'll, the, a little bit with the U.S. Senate, obviously the, sure. the the congressional races. But the key for those legislative races, and this is why knocking doors actually matters. They're like, oh yeah, that was that nice lady who was at my door. I, you know, I kind of remember that name. I'm gonna I'm gonna vote for that person. And and that that's how you can kind of win in those very closely contested races.
0: Guys, let's take at the state legislature for just a moment. We found out that uh, this week that later this month, the House Ethics Committee will be holding a hearing against – about a complaint filed against Democratic Representative Lisa Sun, um, all sorts of allegations of basically not treating people very nicely and, to put it mildly, (laughs) and allegedly getting involved in a child custody case. Marcus, does it seem as though like – obviously, we know what the outcomes could be, right? Like nothing could happen. She could be censured uh she could be expelled like what do you think not having heard all the evidence in in a hearing under oath like what to you seems like the most likely outcome here
1: well you know which sort of establishes pattern of throwing out a member about once a session so i think <laughs> so the, the likely scenario is is her getting tossed out but um i don't it we'll have to see how the hearing goes i will tell you that uh, you know the democrats brought this forward it's a member of their own caucus um kind of handling it like adults and saying hey we've got a problem here these rumors have been going through the hallways for for quite some time, and sort mm-hmm. of sort of came to light. Um, and so, I I will not be shocked uh, if they choose to expel her, um, but. Also, as you so aptly put, there's a number of remedies that they, they could ensue. And remember, there is an election coming up and there is a tendency for some people to think, look, I want the people to handle this, not sure. necessarily us. A...
0: Aaron, what are, you, what are you hearing about what, what folks in the legislature are thinking about this?
2: Yeah, I, I think she, her career as a legislator is over. Uh, the The reality is this is not just not treating people nicely. She threatened physical harm. She said she was being sent by the attorney general to intervene in a DCS case as a state legislator wearing her, you know, little golden bronze mm-hmm. pin or what whatever it is. Um, the, this is a behavior totally beyond the norm. It's directly saying, I'm a state legislator, so I'm doing this. This is this is not putting a Bible in the, you know, in the members lounge type stuff. This is serious stuff intervening in things that impact people's lives. I completely applaud the Democratic leadership for taking this on. And, um, you know, the, the evidence here is really clear. It's stated testimony that we have. It's, I don't think there's going to be a lot more to come out. I don't know how it could really be disputed. And and based on that evidence, I you know, I think there'll be a vote to expel, especially given the fact that it was the Democratic leadership that referred the case to ethics. And and, and frankly, I'm proud of them for doing it. I think it was the right call.
0: Could this be one of the first things the legislature does when it comes back into session in January? Yeah,
2: absolutely. And there's always some, you know, kind of nervous energy when you walk in on that first day and the governor comes in and like, what how's this all going to going to play out. And sometimes those things kind of set the tone. So um, maybe this will be the kumbaya moment of Democrats and Republicans coming together. I suspect not. But um, <laughs> in, in the same way that the Republicans <laughs> handled the Liz Harris situation, which, again, was quite serious in terms of official duties, um, you know, when you've got your own party bringing the the, the charges and when it's a clear cut case, you're usually going to get the minority party, come, the the, major- the other party coming along to vote for the expulsion.
0: Marcus, what kind of tone does that set for the rest of the session if in early January they're already kicking out one of their colleagues?
1: You know, I, I, honestly, I don't think it'll have that big of an effect. I mean, I think they're sort of numb to it at this point, right? You know, as I said just moments ago, I mean, we're down to a yearly exercise on kicking a member yeah. out at this point. So, um I do you know, I'm hopeful that session's going to go a little bit quicker than last year. You're setting the bar really high on that, <laughs> yeah. Marcus. Uh, but I I think actually revenues are going to end up getting closer to to neutral instead of, you know, right now we're hearing we're in the hole. It looks like sales tax might be picking up a little bit. And okay. hopefully, hopefully we can get back to neutral and that should speed things up.
0: All right. We'll have to leave it there. That is Marcus Dellartino, of First Strategic, former state lawmaker Aaron Lieberman. Guys, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks,
2: thanks you. for having us. Happy holidays, everyone.
0: You've been listening to the Friday Newscap from KJZZ's The Show. It's an original podcast recapping the week's biggest stories with experts, commentators, and reporters. You can get the full show podcast at podcast.kjzz.org. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening.